And Radio Derb is on the air. That was a fragment of Franz Josef Haydn's Derbyshire March Number no. 1. And this is your equitably genial host, John Derbyshire, with some commentary on the week's news. From my front door to Midtown Manhattan is a one-hour trip on the Long Island Railroad, so I don't venture into the city without some good reason. This week I made two trips, one on Tuesday evening for a private dinner party, another on Wednesday to an event organised by the Centre for Immigration Studies, a talk by one of their staffers. Thanks to Mark Krikorian and his colleagues for that latter event. The venue was one of the city's big, superbly furnished old clubhouses. Indoor Manhattan at its best. The company was congenial, the finger food was first class, and there was food for thought too. Enough for a couple of Radio Derb segments. The topic of that CIS talk was refugees. The refugee issue is, of course, one aspect of our immigration policy, and we have run plenty of commentary on it here at vide.com across the years. Refugees haven't been much talked about recently, however, because the Biden rush of illegal aliens flooding in over our southern border has monopolised our attention. The refugee issue merits attention, though. It's one area of immigration policy where humane considerations do carry some weight, especially in situations like Southeast Asia in the 1970s or Afghanistan currently, where the refugees are a byproduct of US foreign policy. So, sure, there is a valid moral case for admitting refugees. But when it comes to deciding how many, from where, selected by what criteria, the refugee issue quickly descends into politics. The Eric Hoffer principle comes into play, and refugee resettlement turns into a cash racket. Once I started thinking about it in those terms, the name Anne Corcoran came to mind. For many years, starting in 2007, this lady ran a blog called Refugee Resettlement Watch, offering news, analysis and spirited commentary on the refugee rackets from a national conservative point of view. In 2015, she published a book which you can buy at Amazon, titled Refugee Resettlement and the Hijra to America. Anne Corcoran contributed to VDare.com. If you click on the Writers tab at the top of our main page, you will see her listed there among the rest of us. Her contributions were, I think, all cross-postings 
from her blog, Refugee Resettlement Watch. The last item she posted at VDARE, also a cross-posting from her blog, is dated February 14th last year, 2022. At that point, Anne stopped posting. Nothing on her blog, nothing at vdare.com. That was 14 months ago. Why did Anne stop posting? I asked the speaker at Wednesday evening's CIS event. The speaker wasn't sure, but she had heard that Anne had fallen into despair after Biden won the presidency and had just given up when it was clear that he was going to throw open the border. That's not implausible. All of us working for rational immigration laws, strictly enforced, we've all encountered the demon despair a couple of times. We argue, we expose, we write books and we give talks year after year. In the case of Video.com, actually decade after decade, trying to make our case and things just get steadily worse. It's frustrating. I checked with the boss here, Peter Bremelow, to see if he'd heard anything different. Peter had Anne's email address in his files, so he just asked her. She replied that the blog had been taking too much of her time. She wanted to concentrate on her family business. That's a pity. Refugee Resettlement Watch was a fun blog. Serious and well-researched, properly indignant about the inconvenience and social disorder imposed on working-class and middle-class Americans by the refugee rackets and their enablers, and prompting wider, more general reflections on the rottenness of our nation's politics. I haven't written or spoken much on the refugee resettlement issue myself, but Anne's critical approach needs to be kept alive. I shall try to keep it in mind and bring news stories to your attention as they come up. Here's a funny thing about current refugee resettlement. With the Biden administration's open-door policies in effect, you might suppose that the number of refugees admitted for resettlement here has ballooned, along with all other immigration categories. Wrong. So far this fiscal year... And remember, please, that fiscal 2023 started last October the 1st. So far this fiscal year, just a bit more than 18,000 refugees have been admitted for resettlement, compared with numbers in the 50, 60 or 70,000s for much of this century so far. All right, but we're only halfway through the fiscal year. How about the last complete fiscal year, fiscal 2022, from October 21 to last September. Total admitted, 25,500. 
that's only a tad more than the number for fiscal 2018, when Donald Trump was president for the entire fiscal year. It's actually fewer than in fiscal 2019, another entirely Trump year. Say what? Biden admitted fewer refugees in fiscal 2022 than Trump did in fiscal 2019? Incredible, huh? Here's something even more incredible. That low number under Biden for 2022 was way, way lower than the ceiling. Let me explain about the ceiling. Under federal law, precisely the 1980 Refugee Act, the president can set an annual ceiling for refugee resettlement numbers. The act actually says the president in consultation with Congress, but the ceiling number is basically in the president's gift. Here, expressed in thousands, are the ceiling numbers each year set by President Trump. 50, 45, 30, 18. Here are the ceiling numbers, also in thousands, set so far by Biden. 62 and a half, 125, 125. You getting this? Biden's only admitting for resettlement around 20% of the number that he's allowed to by the ceiling he set. Trump was never that stingy. At his stingiest, fiscal 2018, Trump admitted half of the ceiling number. So what's going on here? What's going on is system overload. Quote from my Wednesday evening speaker. Here she was writing at the CIS website last October. Quote, The border crisis and its illegal crossings, along with other new entrants in need of processing and assistance, such as Afghan and Ukrainian parolees, are overwhelming the system and diverting federal resources away from refugees in need of resettlement. End quote. That word parolees needs explaining. The 1952 Immigration Act allowed the administration to give entry rights to particular people on a case-by-case basis, even when that person didn't meet any of the criteria for legal entry. That's parole. The ink was hardly dry on the 1952 Act, before administrations started abusing their parole authority to let in favoured groups for settlement. Hungarians fleeing after the 1956 uprising, for example. 
That tradition of abusing parole has continued right down to the present day, in spite of occasional efforts by Congress to restrain it. Hence the phrase Afghan and Ukrainian parolees in that quote I just gave you. Yes, they're coming in on parole. Hundreds of thousands of them. And for administrative purposes, that is totally separate from the formal refugee resettlement machinery. That machinery is worked by the State Department in coordination with the UNHCR, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. That's the refugee arm of the United Nations. The UNHCR manages refugee issues worldwide. It decides who is a legitimate refugee and which of three categories each refugee falls into. Category 1. Can safely return to his country of origin. Category 2. Can't safely return to his country of origin, but can safely stay where he currently is, usually some country right adjacent to the one he fled from. Category 3. Can't safely return to country of origin or safely stay where they currently are. Should be resettled in some third country. Category 3 seems to be around 10% of total refugees. That's the pool that UNHCR hands off to our State Department to choose refugees for resettlement here. So, there's a formal international process behind our refugee resettlement policy. The lucky refugees accepted for resettlement here get a few initial weeks of support from the federal government, after which they are handed off to those volags that Anne Corcoran wrote about so scathingly. The voluntary agencies with reassuringly churchy-sounding names. Episcopal Migration Ministries, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, Church World Service and the rest. All of them, of course, sucking powerfully on the federal teat. Well, to be precise, on the State Department budget. That's the Eric Hoffer prediction that I referred to earlier. Once settled here, the refugee has the right to work and to get a green card. Then, after five years in the country, to apply for citizenship. That is all much too cumbersome and limited for the Biden administration's purposes. Just granting mass parole to everyone who shows up is easier. What with the Afghans, the Ukrainians and the floods of illegal entrants across our southern border, however, the number of parolees is overwhelming the entire system, leaving insufficient resources for the proper 
refugee resettlement program. That's why old Joe is admitting so many fewer refugees than the ceiling allows him to. He's actually admitting far more, hundreds of thousands more, just not through the formal State Department plus UNHCR refugee programme. For the Parolese, it works out just the same. Federal aid, work permits, green cards. The Biden administration hasn't been content to just bypass the formal refugee resettlement process. They have also undermined it. The key phrase here is welcome core. That's welcome as in willkommen and bienvenue, welcome. And then core spelt C O R P S, like in Marine Corps. The Welcome Corps was launched back in January this year by our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. So, what is it? First, a quick recap of the Refugee Resettlement Programme. Candidates for resettlement as refugees in the USA are identified by the UNHCR. Our State Department, with one eye on the ceiling number set by the President, taps some subset of the UNHCR recommendations, admits them for settlement in this country, and supports them for the first few weeks they're here. Then State hands off the refugees to those volags with the churchy names. They get work permits and green cards and, in the fullness of time, apply for citizenship. The Welcome Corps liberalises all that. Instead of UNHCR and the State Department picking refugees for settlement... Private persons and groups of private persons can pick them. That doesn't mean a complete privatisation of the process. Lots of taxpayer money will still be spent on refugees. The privatisation is partial in two key areas. One, selecting refugees, and two, those initial weeks of support before the Volags take over. The sponsoring person or private group has to fund the initial 90 days. That's all. Notice how carefully I've been saying private person, not private citizen, in reference to those sponsoring refugees. A worrisome feature of this welcome core, a problematic feature, if you don't mind some woke jargon, is that you don't need to be a citizen to sponsor someone for refugee status. You only need to be a legal resident with a green card. 
a resident alien, as it used to say on my own green card. Do you have to be a U.S. citizen to serve in the Marine Corps? I forget. Whatever, you don't have to be a citizen to serve in the Welcome Corps. You can, in fact, be a refugee yourself, a Welcome Corps beneficiary, once you've gotten your green card after a few months in the country. So the Welcome Corps basically adds a whole new dimension of chain migration to our immigration system. Ahmed, Kofi or Jose gets here on a Welcome Corps sponsorship, acquires a green card, declares his buddy, Mohammed, Kwesi or Jorge, someone utterly unknown to UNHCR or the State Department, declares his buddy to be a refugee and sponsors him for settlement. You're bound to suspect that the Welcome Corps adds something else to our immigration system. Lots of new opportunities for graft and corruption. Secretary Blinken, in his January announcement of the programme, gushed about, I quote, harnessing the energy and talents of Americans from all walks of life desiring to serve as private sponsors, ranging from members of faith and civic groups, veterans, diaspora communities, businesses, colleges and universities, and more, end quote. Prior to hearing about the Welcome Corps, I would never have believed that our federal government could do anything to make the immigration system worse than it was up to mid-January. To further wreck something already totally wrecked requires a special kind of genius. Evil genius. Well done, lads. So, what is the next target for the wrecking crew? Could it be the military? I don't think it could. Why not? Because our nation's armed forces have, in fact, already been comprehensively wrecked. The demolition work was well underway 14 years ago when, after a Muslim army officer murdered 13 of his colleagues at Fort Hood in Texas, U.S. Army Chief of Staff George Casey famously whimpered that, quote, as horrific as this tragedy was, if our diversity becomes a casualty, I think that's worse, end quote. That same title, U.S. Army Chief of Staff, was held a few years later by General Mark Milley, who has since then ascended even further to Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the highest position not merely in the Army but in the entire armed forces of our country. 
It seems to have been Milley who approved the inclusion of critical race theory in the study curriculum at West Point because, he told the House Armed Services Committee, quote, I want to understand white rage, and I'm white. End quote. The Navy is just as bad. One of its four-star admirals is a guy in a dress. That's old news. Newer news from earlier this month is that yeoman second-class Joshua Kelly, who identifies as non-binary and puts on a wig and a dress to perform on stage as Harpy Daniels, Yeoman Kelly was picked to be the service's first digital ambassador in hopes that his sexual ambiguity would attract more Gen Z recruits. This kind of thing isn't so surprising in the Navy. Winston Churchill, more than a 100 years ago, listed the traditions of the British Navy as rum, sodomy and the lash. And that was in line of descent from a much older formula on the same subject. Rum, bum and tobacco. Buggery on board the battleships aside, I don't have much of a feel for how anti-white the Navy is. We've run some past articles on the topic, on, for example, Barack Obama's hopes to correct the appalling whiteness of the Navy SEALs, but senior Navy staff don't seem to air their opinions on race as freely as do officers in the other services. The real heart of wokeness in the US military today seems to be the Air Force. The current Chief of Staff of that service since June 2020, is Charles Quinton Brown Jr., a black man. A year after Brown's appointment, Daniel Greenfield over at the Front Page magazine website posted a blistering account of anti-white rantings by senior Air Force personnel like Chief Master Sergeant Calith Wright, the Air Force's top enlisted leader. Sample from Greenfield's article, beginning with a quote from Wright. Quote, in a quote, My heart starts racing like most other black men in America when I see those blue lights behind me. You don't know the anxiety, the despair, the heartache, the fear, the rage, and the disappointment that comes with living in this country every single day. End in a quote. It made you wonder why Wright hadn't left America for somewhere safer, like Cuba. End quote. Air Force Chief of Staff Charles Quinton Brown Jr. is totally on board, or on runway, with such sentiments. Now we hear that President Biden has tapped Brown to replace Mark Milley as Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff when Milley steps down this October. 
If you thought white guy anti-white guilt was inappropriate in a chairman of the Joint Chiefs, wait till you see black guy anti-white paranoia. Of course, before he can take up that position, Brown's appointment first has to be approved by the US Senate. Given his track record of racist raving, as partially documented in Daniel Greenfield's article, senators might reject him, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Last week I mentioned the case of Daniel Penny, the young white man who subdued a shrieking, threatening black lunatic in a New York subway carriage. The lunatic died, although there is nothing to suggest that Penny intended him to. Manhattan's black communist district attorney, Alvin Bragg, I noted, bypassed the grand jury process that would have been normal in such a case and had Penny arrested and charged with manslaughter in the second degree. That's all in accordance with the quadruple justice system I spelled out for you back in January last year. One of my email correspondents, I told you, had offered the opinion, which I thought and still think is correct, that we now have four different systems of criminal justice. One, white on black crime. Mob justice just short of lynching, but with the optics of a fair trial. Two, white on white crime. Standard American jurisprudence. Three, black on white crime. Standard American jurisprudence, but with reduced severity, given that the root cause is systemic racism, not any depravity on the part of the defendant. Four, black on black crime. Discouraged, but not investigated or prosecuted too vigorously, except in the most egregious of cases. Nobody much cares what blacks do to each other, and there's no money to be made from these crimes by Al Sharpton or Benjamin Crump. Well, it may be wishful thinking on my part, but I believe I see signs of a general awakening to this among white Americans. Here's one of those signs. Supporters of Daniel Penny have so far contributed $2.6 million to a fund set up to cover his legal expenses. A fund set up by the dead guy's family, I guess to cover his funeral expenses, was not quite $150,000 when I looked just now. Those are two different funding sites, by the way. The Dead Guys fundraiser is at GoFundMe, which only allows funding for causes that are regime compliant. Daniel Penny's fund is Give, Send, Go, 
a different funding site that allows support for cases the ruling class disapproves of. Like the Brunswick Three, who were so savagely railroaded in the Armored Arbery case last year. What Daniel Penny's chances are in our quadruple justice system, especially in front of a Manhattan judge and jury, I hesitate to predict. I wish him all the luck in the world anyway. He acted on behalf of normal people and civilised public spaces, with, I am sure, no homicidal intent. This week's attempt at narrative reinforcement fell flat on its face almost immediately. This arose from an incident last Friday, May 12th, also in Manhattan. A young female physician assistant, who is six months pregnant, left her 12-hour shift and headed to a nearby city bike station. These are racks of bicycles that you can free from their docking station and pay for using your smartphone. She did that and started to pull a bike out, intending to ride it home. Five young blacks closed in on her, one of them filming the whole incident. Another one pushed the bike back into the docking station and manhandled the woman, all the time yelling that it was his bike, that he'd paid for it, and that she was trying to steal it from him. The woman, who was plainly terrified, started yelling for help. The video went viral, and the young lady became a hate figure on anti-white social media. A Karen. Black race racketeer Benjamin Crump posted a tweet saying, quote, This is unacceptable. A white woman was caught on camera attempting to steal a city bike from a young black man in New York City. She grossly tried to weaponize her tears to paint this man as a threat. This is exactly the kind of behaviour that has endangered so many black men in the past. End quote. Crump has since, of course, deleted that tweet. That one's comparatively civilised, though. Try this one, quote. The fact that she's a nurse... She's probably neglected and killed so many minorities. End quote. The young woman's employers at Bellevue Hospital, of course, believed the crump version. They placed her on leave pending a review of the incident. Before Alvin Bragg could show up to put the lady under arrest, she got herself a lawyer and produced receipts proving. It was she who had paid for the bike. The incredible and alarming thing here is that so many people believed the black kid's story. They believed, or for social reasons they pretended to believe, that a young white woman, visibly pregnant, would get aggressive with a platoon of young blacks. 
I guess if you have internalized the narrative, the great, the eternal, the most lovingly cherished American narrative, the narrative of meek, soulful, helpless, baby-faced young blacks groaning pitifully under the heel of white supremacy. I guess if you have internalized that narrative, it makes sense. The story has now faded into the cosmic microwave background. So far as I know, no one has apologised to the young lady. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. Just a follow-up to last week's coverage of New York City Mayor Eric Adams at war with the city suburbs over transporting illegal aliens to suburban hotels. Nassau County, the first suburban county east of the city, has already made itself heard. Quote from Bruce Blakeman, the Republican county executive. Quote, we are not a sanctuary county, end quote. The next county further east, Suffolk County, is the one I live in. Our county executive, Steve Bellone, claims he doesn't know of any plans to relocate border jumpers here. However, the town supervisor of the town of Riverhead further east than I am, contradicted him, telling a local news station that Mayor Eric Adams sent out an advisory communication to all housing facilities in Suffolk County to accept the scoff laws and that the city would pay for their housing. The town supervisor has declared a state of emergency, banning hotels, motels and shelters in her town from accepting any illegals. So, who knows? Adams is a weasel, and he'll do what he can to get his way. If it comes to street fighting out here, I'm locked and loaded. Item. Did you see those pictures of Senator Dianne Feinstein being wheeled around the Capitol? Hoo-wee! Eighty-nine years old, impaired vision, shingles, brain swelling, facial paralysis. This is a working U.S. senator? And this is her sixth term. Why on earth does anyone vote for her? Oh, right, this is California. For important decision-making positions like U.S. Senator and, uh, oh, maybe President, there need to be limitations based on health and mental ability. It's disgraceful to have these drooling old dementia patients in charge of our national affairs. Disgraceful, yeah, but mighty convenient for the deep state operators. Can't we do anything to get our republic back on the rails? Item. Here's one for the file, labelled, You Can't Make This Up. 
The city of Baltimore is suing two Korean car manufacturers for making cars that are too easy to steal. I can't improve on this comment at a Twitter thread about the story. Quote, We are just about to the point where burglars and muggers will start suing their victims because they turned out to possess nothing worth stealing. Item. I've been telling you since the war between Ukraine and Russia started that it's being fought between the world's two most corrupt white nations. Well, here you go. This is from Kyle Becker's blog, May 17th. Quote, Following recent revelations of extensive corruption within the Supreme Court, Ukrainian prosecutors have taken into custody the head of the country's highest judicial body. Although the official's identity was not revealed, local media reports indicated that Chief Justice Vsevolod Knyazyev had been detained in connection with a $3 million bribe. Reuters was unable to reach Mr. Knyazyev for comment. End quote. Perhaps Reuters could ask Hunter Biden for a comment. He's pretty well connected in Ukraine, isn't he? Item. Finally, a book recommendation. Back in mid-April, I had a couple of long segments about the history of relations between Russia and China. I did not know, I was completely unaware until a friend alerted me, that just a few days after that podcast was to be the publication date for a new book by China expert Philip Snow. Title, China and Russia, Four Centuries of Conflict and Concord. My podcast was April 14th. The book came out April 25th. It was sheer coincidence, I swear. I ordered a copy and it arrived midweek. I'm not far into it yet. I'll give a full report in my monthly diary when I finished and digested the book. It's not light reading. 527 pages of text and then 45 pages of end notes. So far I'm enjoying it though. If the topic interests you, by all means give the book a try. That's all I have for you this week, listeners. Thank you for listening, and the usual apologies for being so far behind with my email. To play us out, here's a little snippet of Mozart. It's instrumental, no voices, but if you're an opera fan, you will recognise it as the tune to a duet in The Magic Flute. I'm afraid I have no idea who's working the strings here. I found the snippet lodged in one of my sound files when cleaning up my data the other day. It's lovely, and it's a shame to waste it. That's all. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. <laughs>